0: This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised.
1: This is an elimination homicide. Bessie, whether it be the extortion schemes or something else she was involved with, wanted her gone, and they wanted her gone quickly, and they didn't want her to be found.
0: I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show. I've interviewed some people in person and some from my home studio over Zoom. And they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories. And now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories.
1: My name is Paul Holes. I'm a retired cold case investigator out of Contra Costa County District Attorney's Office, which is in the Bay Area, California. You know, over the course of my career, I consulted for a wide variety of agencies in the Bay Area, not just within Contra Costa County, but in the surrounding region. My wheelhouse was cold cases. However, I also was pulled into active cases if they needed somebody who had a, a different type of expertise than the people that they typically would be relying upon.
0: So, what would that be as far as cold cases go?
1: Over the decades, I ended up being involved in many, many cold cases that had a broad spectrum of different types of circumstances, but my specialty generally was leaning towards the serial predator, the fantasy-motivated predator.
0: Well, and I think that's why you're going to be really helpful for me in this cold case, which is important to me because it appears in one of my books, and it's a cold case from 1925. Just to give you a little bit of background, the book that I wrote, American Sherlock, was about Oscar Heinrich, who was a forensic scientist in the 1920s. He started in 1910, and he closed more than 2,000 cases by the time he retired in 1953. And this case happens in the middle of the book in 1925. So I'm just going to lay this out, Paul, and then I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions and, and you can interrupt me and jump in. Sure. So this happens August of 1925. There is a boy who is walking around the marsh in El Cerrito, California, which is in Northern California. And he's walking around the marsh. He's collecting sort of a table setting, I suppose, for his mother. And he sees something on the ground that looks like a baby bird that might have died. Okay. He walks over, he looks down, and it is a piece of a scalp with an ear attached. He takes it to his dad. His dad calls the police. And at this point in Oscar Heinrich's career, he's brought in fairly early into cases because he's really established himself as a solid forensic scientist. And he looks at this ear and they say to him, there's no other parts of the body. We have no clue where this body is. So it is clear to him that this has been someone who has been dismembered. So let's start there, just from your expertise in profiling and your interest in it. This is 50 years before the FBI established the Behavioral Science Unit. Oscar was interested in in the dismemberment factor. So what is that about? What mentality is that?
1: It actually is varied. There is just a a pure functional aspect to dismemberment, and that is disposal of the body to make the dis- disposal of the body, easier as well as more efficient, less likely to be caught. A vast majority of the population do not have any experience in looking at body parts out of context. And so, depending on how the body has been dismembered, it's possible that somebody could even see it and not recognize that that is part of a human.
0: Okay, so we move forward. Oscar Heinrich, the forensic scientist, has the ear and the scalp. Luckily for me, he was a fantastic photographer and he chronicled everything. So he does all his measurements, he examines it all. And he finds a couple of things. One, I noticed that this person had a pierced ear and so did Heinrich. So he assumed this would be a woman. This was actually unusual in the 1920s. This was a woman who wanted to be fashionable. So already he's able to build a profile of who this person is.
1: And that is interesting to me. You know, it's, it's those little clues. And it's also sort of the understanding the culture at the time the crime is committed. That is so important in cold case work is you can't look at the case in 2021. You have to look at the case as it occurred in 1925 and understand that culture And that gives you more insight into the dynamics of the offender and the victim. That's really interesting. I had never heard that pierced ears were not common back then, but that was more for maybe individuals that were more prominent in society maybe.
0: This was just catching on. And the only reason I thought about this was because I just remember having a box of my grandmother's clip-on earrings. And I just remember going, okay, this was from the 1920s and 30s. When did the piercings begin? So when I started researching this case, I thought, okay, when did this happen? She also, I noticed, had a lot of freckling on her ears. So obviously she had spent some time outside. She might've spent more time outdoors than a woman who was sort of high society. She had blonde hair. So he determined, and and he was correct, that she was of Scandinavian. descent.
1: And I know you sent me a copy of this picture and I'm I'm going to pull it up. What's notable is the lack of decomposition, Mm -hmm. relatively speaking. This should have looked so much worse if this had been somebody who, let's say, drowned and washed up on the shore or had been out hiking or something else and died out there in the marsh.
0: That's not what I'm seeing. And let's talk about time of death. He had a theory about it. This was the first case in the United States where someone used forensic entomology, oh. the way that bugs arrive. Yep. I know you know about this. It's the theory that certain bugs arrive to a body during certain stages of decomposition. Blowflies come first, lay eggs, then beetles, and so on and so on. He found blowflies only. So that means... To his estimate, at least it was deposited somewhere between 24 and 48 hours. Does that square with you?
1: Absolutely. There is that whole succession of, of insects that arrive, blowflies, they are there within minutes after death. It's shocking how fast I've seen that happen. I absolutely agree. This was a very fortunate find, if you will, that somebody was out in this location and happened to look and say, oh, this looks different, and call it in.
0: Absolutely. So the next step for Oscar was examining the scalp and the ear, and he was expecting to find a lot of mud because in this marsh, it was sort of this black tar, stick your foot in and it doesn't come out kind of marsh. So he examines it. Of course, there's mud. But the key thing that he does here, he looks inside the canal of the ear, and he finds a grain of sand. Okay. Not present in the marsh anywhere. So this is slightly complicated. He has the police kind of breathing down his neck. Where's the rest of the body? They searched, of course, the marsh and tried to drain it. They couldn't find anything else. He takes this grain of sand and Oscar in a previous life was a sanitary engineer. So he used a process with a very special microscope to look with a special prism underneath a microscope to see the composition of sand or dirt or anything that he was using to help design highways. So he uses, this microscope and he figures out the composition of the sand and he sees the chlorine deposits and the salt deposits. And he says to the cops, I have a place for you to look. And he opens up this geological survey map and the cops say, great, how close is it? And he said, 12 miles away. And they said, how is that possible? And he said, okay, the amount of salt that is attached to this grain of sand and chlorine is not enough to come from a beach on El Cerrito, right on the beach. It's small, some sort of like a stream that comes off. It's a small amount of salt. And then he said, and the deposits that make up this grain of sand, and he had it blown up so that it looked like a boulder. The deposits that make up this grain of sand are really narrowed down to one place. It's called Bay Farm Island, and it's 12 miles away from here. And he circled essentially a one or two mile space. Of course, the cops said, you're crazy. And they sent a whole team out anyway. And guess what they found? Bags of body parts from this woman. This is forensic geology, and it was the first in the nation, yet again, of something that he used to figure out where the body was.
1: For many, many years in my office, I had a a geological soil survey map from the 1930s of my jurisdiction, Contra Costa County, hung up. And uh, it actually came into play because I had a body that had mud on it that was not from the location where the body was found and ended up having a soil expert help pinpoint where this mud could be from. And unfortunately, it was too ubiquitous in order to narrow down a region, you know, like in this case. However, that is a very real part of forensic science that often is overlooked.
0: And legitimate. It is not junk science. Forensic geology is real. It
1: it very much is. And, you know, for him to be employing this back in 1925 and the fact that they even had that kind of survey with that kind of detail is, is incredible. There is a level of instinct that he is following. Okay, Bay Farm Island. Yes, absolutely. That could be a source of this, but also somebody could have visited Bay Farm Island. This is part of trace evidence as you get secondary and tertiary transfers. So you could also make a statement along the lines this body part had been in a vehicle in which somebody had visited that location.
0: So this is someone who seems to be comfortable in sort of some remote areas, the tule Marshes, and this was under Bay Farm Island Bridge, which I'm not sure even exists anymore. I don't know. Here's what we have. We have multiple bags of pretty decomposed body parts, which is surprising because, as you pointed out, the scalp and the ear were not greatly decomposed. So he typed it with the blowflies and said 24 to 48 hours. What they found were bags of decomposed body parts that seemed much older. What Oscar discovered, and this is going to be really important in your profiling here of this case, is that someone used lime.
1: Okay. In terms of uh, applying a chemical to speed up the breakdown of the the tissues, this is somebody who is really trying to render this body unrecognizable as fast as possible. Sounds like we have most of the body being found Bay Farm Island, but then we have a scalp piece found up in El Cerrito in the Thule Marsh. So now they're distributing parts of the body. So that's also trying to further make the association of these various body parts more difficult in the event that they're discovered.
0: These bags were buried pretty strategically. Now we're at a point where it looks like he's doing a pretty good job covering this up. If it weren't for Oscar Heinrich and this special microscope that he used, we're not sure these would have been recovered anytime soon. Let's talk about what happens in the 70s with the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit. And they come up with two terms that I think are really interesting that I think we could use here. Disorganized versus organized killer. Yes. I'm not the expert here, but this falls under the organized killer. Is that right? Absolutely. With the way the FBI
1: used those terms, and and my understanding is is the current profilers have, have moved away from categorizing offenders in those types of discrete categories. But for me... As an investigator who is just trying to understand the offender, the organized and disorganized categories are extremely invaluable. And to compare and contrast, your disorganized offender is the offender that generally is on the spectrum of having possibly a psychosis or a mental illness. They're not thinking about preserving their own freedom to try to get away with the crime. They act impulsively. They commit the crime. That spontaneous aspect leads to them leaving a lot of evidence. Witnesses see them coming and going. They're leaving their DNA. They're leaving their latents. There was no planning. Whereas your more organized offender, if you're dealing with a very sophisticated and intelligent offender, they plan their crimes. And it's not just who is going to be my victim and how am I going to get to that person after I do what I want to do? How am I going to get away with the crime? And so in this case, we are now seeing That there is this level of dismemberment, the application of the chemical to speed up the process, which they would have had access to, in addition to the ability to move around at least along the eastern coast of the bay to help start hiding the body parts. How am I going to get away with this? And so that is your organized offender.
0: Does this sound like someone who's done this before? Or is it possible that someone could be this organized, this good just on the first go round?
1: You could have somebody who has been involved in this body disposal process before. However, if you have a reasonably intelligent person who is thinking about, I want to commit a crime for whatever reason, how am I going to get away with it? What resources do I readily have access to or can get access to in order to get those resources lined up ahead of time in order to accomplish the crime? That's your intelligent offender. And so your intelligent offender can do some things that oftentimes I've seen investigators or even other experts make the mistake of, oh, this person must have done this before. Not necessarily you have deep thinkers out there that commit crimes. And the first time they do it, they do a good job.
0: So now we're moving from we found the body to who is she, is what the police want to know, from Oscar. So let's identify her. What happened over the couple of days where they were really trying to figure this out is, of course, there was publicity. This was a high-profile case at the time in 1925. And there were people who were bringing up missing women. Oscar had profiled her based on how you would typically figure out how old someone was based on her height and he was also able to find a crown from her skull so they were checking with local dentists and eventually she was identified as a young woman named Bessie Ferguson and Bessie had an interesting background that we'll talk a little bit about which I think falls under victimology is that right is that one of the what is is that one of the ways that we go from the victim to figuring out who the killer was explain that for me
1: Right. Victimology is a very broad term. It refers to, of course, who the person is, you know, their name their background where do they work their education you know to try to establish okay this is the type of person the victim was the victimology also encompasses their social circles it encompasses their personality and if they were confronted by an offender how would this person respond are they a fighter are they somebody who would go passive and basically allow the offender to command them so that plays into not only the investigative side who's in this victims social circles it also plays into the behavior behavioral assessment of what happened between the offender and the victim. Well, based on the victim's personality, this is how we would expect that person to respond when confronted with a violent situation, a crime situation. And then, of course, there's risk assessment in terms of, is this victim somebody who is partaking in certain aspects that is elevating their likelihood of becoming the victim of a crime? Is this a a person that is going out on the street corner in the middle of the night and buying drugs? They're more likely to be shot by a drug dealer. It elevates the risk than somebody who never does that. So understanding victimology is huge.
0: Victimology plays a very important role in this case. I agree with you. So Heinrich calls in her parents, Bessie Ferguson's parents, and I have all of his notes where he details her life. She came from a family of four young women, and her parents were married. They seemed to have a pretty nice life together. They were very tight-knit. Bessie was a nurse. She became a private nurse. She worked for hospitals also. She had been recently unemployed, but she did a lot of odd jobs. What we find out about Bessie Ferguson is that she had dated a few men, and in order to make some money, She had, according to her parents and according to notes that they found in her apartment, convinced some of these men that she was pregnant with their children. And she needed money for child support. We're talking with Paul Holes about a cold case— A very cold case. The 1925 murder of Bessie Ferguson and how the forensic scientist Edward Oscar Heinrich investigated it. We've just discovered that Bessie was extorting men for child support payments for kids that didn't exist. There was no evidence that she was pregnant. And we'll talk about it a little bit because a botched abortion was one of the theories that Oscar pretty quickly dismissed. And I'll tell you why. There is a list of suspects with various backgrounds. Suspect number one is a man named Gordon Rowe, who was a businessman. He owned a hunting cabin. Had you read anything about Gordon Rowe? He was really one of the biggest suspects besides the sheriff that you mentioned.
1: I had not. My understanding is, is that, you know, she had dated multiple prominent individuals within the Oakland society. Oakland, of course, being right there in in the Bay Area, just south of El Cerrito. So that, of course, was significant. And then the one potential suspect, the sheriff.
0: So the first one on the list who I mentioned, Gordon Rowe, was a businessman who she had worked with. They had been having an affair. Notes found in her apartment indicated that he thought she needed to raise the baby. He would help. But there were other notes that were a little more acerbic from different men who only signed with initials, smartly, threatening her about keeping the baby. These are not babies who existed. So this becomes very complicated for Oscar trying to find information from her parents without offending them. Police probably are a little more comfortable with asking pointed questions of victims' families now, but you can imagine in the 20s, this would have been touchy. Have you had to handle the victim who was not, quote unquote, innocent? victim that we come to expect in the media?
1: Notably, as an example, with Golden State Killer, as I was marching down on suspects, I often track down ex-wives or ex-girlfriends. These were women who were dating my suspects back in the nineteen seventies. And so today they're 60, 70 years old. And now I'm I'm talking to them about their ex. Part of that investigation, just due to the circumstances of what the Golden State killer was doing during the commission of his crimes, is I would need to know details about their sexual history with that man. Oof. And so that is a skill that I developed, you know, in terms of being able to talk to women and get them comfortable enough with me to where now they are relaying very intimate details about their physical encounters with the suspects that I was looking at. That's something that I have personally experienced, and it, it can be very hard to do depending on the person. And you know, some of these individuals I was talking to are, are much more forthcoming, and then others are more of the prim and proper type, like what I would expect the family of Bessie Ferguson would have been back in 1925.
0: Yeah, I think it was a very uncomfortable conversation for both Oscar and for the family. Oscar was interesting because for a person who was in the field, a forensic scientist who was in the field with all of these cops, he was pretty fussy Mm-hmm. He believed in 1925 that women should still be wearing corsets and be chaperoned, and so I was surprised when he empathized so much with Bessie Ferguson that he really sort of took up the torch for her. At this point, he understands her background, he understands that she was potentially extorting men from money, and he still has an incredible amount of pain and empathy for her parents and for her, and he's determined to find the killer. Do you find yourself, maybe with the Golden State Killer or with another case, do you find yourself as an investigator being drawn into the emotions of the family and being almost too invested sometimes? That
1: absolutely does happen. For me, I know not only just with Golden State Killer, but with uh, you know multiple other cases, seeing the trauma that the families have gone through by the loss of their loved ones, and then looking at the photos of the victim. I've had family members give me photos of victims as you know as they grew up and then i knew what happened to that victim and you know what the last moments of their life were like knowing that nobody's life should ever end that way it becomes where it's not just a case it becomes something that is very personal becomes uh, an obligation to pursue these to the best of of my abilities. And I think with Heinrich, what I'm hearing is, you know, on one hand, he had a personal life philosophy that was sort of in line with men at the time. What I can respect, though, is he didn't do the victim blaming. He basically recognized that no matter what Bessie was doing, nobody should have ever ended up like this. And whoever did this to her, even if they were potentially going to be extorted by her, that is not justification for how her life was ended.
0: And one thing that he felt that it was important for people to know, at least according to his notes in the memo that he sent, the district attorney was that she had an older brother at one point who had a stroke. Before he passed away, she took care of him. She was a nurse. She was a very caring person. She had just been caught up with some things. So back to Gordon Rowe. He is a hunter besides being a businessman. And there is a hunting cabin, which of course sends off all kinds of alarms with the police. So Oscar goes out to the hunting cabin and and he says it smells like death. He looks at the blood. He looks at knives that were potentially there. He concludes that this is not the crime scene. This is not where a human body would have been dismembered. This is animal blood. He looked into Gordon's background. He interviewed everybody around him. He looked at his behavior before and after the crime, his alibi, and signed off on him this is not the guy who did it. Yeah. Which is probably why you hadn't heard about him. So, is that hard to do? At what point do you say, let's cross this guy off the list and move on?
1: It is very hard to do. Of course, in modern day times, we have eliminating evidence. We have, let's say, DNA that we know is from the offender. And that DNA profile from the offender does not match the suspect's DNA. That's easy. But to base An elimination off of an assessment of the person based on how they are interviewed, based on an assessment of where they likely would have committed the crime and there's no evidence, that is so much harder to do. I've been there and I've done that. And it's uncomfortable. And I've learned that even though I say, I don't think this is the guy, it's think. And if I find something else during the course of my work that, oh, I got to reconsider that, that guy is always on the table if I don't have that hard elimination. So with Heinrich eliminating Roe, you know, he's assessing the hunting cabin and is going, this is animal. Roe now moves low down on the priority but he should never be taken off the list because something could change. A new fact comes in and then all of a sudden row is front and center and you have to step back and put your ego aside and go, okay, maybe I misjudged my early assessment on this guy and I need to reconsider the new facts.
0: So back to building a profile, which is really important to Heinrich. There are a couple things at play. I think that Heinrich is channeling the people who profile Jack the Ripper because he looks at the dismissal pieces. And he says, not the expertise of a surgeon, much more of someone with some kind of medical background. And unfortunately for him, most of the people on Bessie Ferguson's list of extorted men were either dentists or doctors. What do we even think about that, (laughs) about the medical professional in Jack the Ripper and beyond? I've
1: kind of gone on a rant a little bit about... People assessing dismembered remains and forming opinions that it's showing the skill of a surgeon. Only a surgeon or somebody trained in the medical field could have done this. Even just within this case, you know, we have Roe, a hunter. Here's somebody who is dressing down large animals. This is something that people with that type of skill set are readily going to be able to very efficiently dismember a human body. If you're sawing somebody's head off and you run into the vertebrae, the knife is not going to go through that vertebrae very easily. However, all of a sudden you find the intervertebral space where the disc is. Now the knife is able to channel its way through. Pops right off. Doesn't mean you have any anatomical knowledge. You just found the easy way to do it. What I look at is, was this some who manually utilizing a sharp-edged instrument, such as a scalpel or a knife, cut the body apart? Or was there different tools being used? Are they using manual saws or manual tools versus powered tools? So that's really how I start breaking down assessing how the body was dismembered.
0: That makes sense. When we move on to the next suspect, who is the one you mentioned, who is Sheriff Frank Barnett. So, Heinrich thought very little of him. Barnett is someone who apparently Bessie Ferguson was having an affair with, someone who believed that she was pregnant with his child. On the morning that she disappeared, the last time her family saw her, she met her mother on the corner in Oakland, and she was dressed very nicely. Her mother had no idea where the money came from. I think she had a ring that her mother had never seen. There was a a whole slew of evidence that made her mother nervous. She said that she had to go to the doctor. She was going to meet the sheriff, is what Heinrich said, the mother said. In theory, either a doctor or the sheriff were the last to see her alive. He interviewed Barnett, and he concluded that Frank Barnett was too dumb to pull this off. (laughs) And not skilled enough to even have a partner who could pull this off. He would... <laughs> I think that he thought Burnett was a little bit more of a disorganized, not so bright, someone who who would have botched this up and wasn't someone who certainly was going to pour lime and distribute.
1: Well, you know, and, and I think that this now comes into the assessment of the, the suspect. What is the, the mental aptitude of this person? And then, of course, what is their social circles and everything else? What does this person have access to? When I had my brief encounter with this case five or six years ago before I retired, there was information that Sheriff Barnett was extremely corrupt. He was really trying to maintain gambling, prostitution, all these activities within the region, even though he's the sheriff. In many ways, he's connected to the underbelly of the Bay Area. And so that connection now becomes huge from an investigative standpoint. Maybe the sheriff himself is too dumb to to pull this off, but all he has to do is reach out to somebody who is capable of doing this because he most certainly has friends in his political world that are very capable of doing
0: this. Well, and to me, it's very clear that this was not random. This is someone she knew. I interviewed somebody about the Colonial Parkway killer. These victims were sort of known, but not known previously by the killer. So he wasn't scared of being connected because they wouldn't have been connected. Yeah, This is obviously someone who worked really hard to cover this up because they were connected and could be traced back to him. Does that sound right?
1: When I take a look at what happened to Bessie, we've talked a little bit about the dismemberment and I probably should explain to the listeners my limited role in this case is it was roughly, I think it was 2016, Alameda Coroner's Office reached out to me because they found Bessie's remains in their possession. There was some... controversy back in the day when her remains were found as to what jurisdiction was going to take control of them, whether it be Contra Costa County or Alameda. And these are two neighboring jurisdictions, Contra Costa being north of Alameda, right on the eastern edge of uh, San Francisco Bay. But this death investigator who reached out to me, she reached out to me because she knew that I had understanding where the information on old, old cases in Contra Costa County was stored. It wasn't for any forensic issue. It wasn't for any investigative support. It was literally, I need to know what Contra Costa County has in their records. And so that was my role in this case. But she had sent me photos of the remains as they were in Alameda. So right now, I'm looking at a photo of Bessie Ferguson's remains inside this crockpot-sized metal container. And basically, there's these skeletal remains, but there's some things that really stand out to me when I take a look at the bones and the dismemberment, there is some tissue and all these remains have a green hue to them. They have reacted what appears to be with copper and I don't know if that is copper from this container or if that is a result of the chemical processing the offender did but when i look at her skull and unfortunately it's just a, a you know a view from underneath the skull but i am seeing a depressed fracture on her right side as well as i'm seeing an extraordinarily clean cut through her cervical vertebrae she was decapitated in addition the long bones of the arms and legs have been cut and shockingly clean cuts. Now, I don't have what I'd want to see where I have the side lighting along the cut surface to be able to determine, was this a manual cut or was this something done by a powered saw? It most certainly was not done by a hunting knife. The offender who cut her body up had a tool that was able to cut through her major bones in her body with No effort whatsoever. This isn't like somebody trying to take a circular saw and spraying tissue and blood all over the place. This appears more in line with somebody who has machinery that is capable of very rapidly dismembering this body, cutting it up. This is a large geographic area in which they're distributing parts of her body. What puzzles me is why so much of her body was found on Bay Farm Island. Why not distribute it more than that?
0: Right. Now that you're talking about these clean cuts and everything, I wonder if Oscar might have done something before, because he had those bones before anybody else did. I wonder if he had made those cuts. Is that possible? <sighs>
1: I don't see any reason why he would, unless I don't either. The early days, uh, bodies would be practiced on. You know, if you had a theory, you could practice on them, but you wouldn't do it on the the actual victim's body. You'd you'd do it on another deceased body that was in the morgue. I would not eliminate the possibility that you had somebody. When I say machinery, something like a press with a sharp edge that literally Oof. boom. Boom, just going through and cutting her apart.
0: How horrific.
1: If we are now dealing with something that has a power and edge to it that could create these clean cuts, you are now dealing with somebody who has access to some sort of industrial warehouse. When I think about the sheriff and his associations, his corrupt associations, Yeah, if he's involved with a mob-like organization, they probably are fairly well versed in getting rid of their enemies, and this may be a process that they routinely employed. And so they had the resources in order to do it. And Bessie stepped into the wrong group of people. Whether it was extortion plot on the sheriff because you know she's claiming he you know he fathered her child, right? She pissed somebody else off. That is one possibility. The sheriff had resources. He had other people that likely would be able to do what I am seeing done to Bessie.
0: Two interesting things. One, if you look at Heinrich's notes and who he sends his memo to the district attorney at the time in California was Earl Warren, who later became the governor of California and then, of course, a U.S. Supreme Court Chief Justice. So, I was startled when I saw this letter to Earl Warren. I was thinking, is that the same? Yes, yes it is the same Yes. <laughs> One last piece of information. As we you know, Heinrich had thought this was definitely done by somebody who knew what they were doing, a medical professional, someone used to working with patients. Really, I think he was thinking, honestly, Paul, someone not squeamish. So on his list were, she had some family members who were doctors and dentists, or she was having affairs with doctors and dentists. There was one person that no one knows about. It was never in the newspapers. It was only buried in his notes. The only person, he really doesn't clearly identify, a man named C.C. C. Lee, L-E-E, who was a man from China who was a dentist who lived across the street from Bessie's family, where she was often. His shredded business card was found in Bessie's bag, and he examined her clothing, which was found at the scene, and there was dental molding on it. So what you would use, I guess, in the tw- in 1925 to put a crown on, perhaps? Yeah. And there were tool marks on her crown. He says to Earl Warren, I'm not saying this guy 100% did it. Unless you fully investigate C.C. C. Lee, you will not be confident in whoever you sign off on because the information I have from her family is he was fixated on her. He lived right across the street. Her family rented a garage from him. His wife visited with Bessie often. So this was at the top of his list. He could never prove it, but this seemed a likely suspect. What do you think about that?
1: That is interesting. And and now this is where we move away from this is solely an elimination homicide to where if you have somebody who is stalking Bessie. He lives nearby the Silence of the Lambs. You covet what you see, right? Is this that type of homicide? And what we don't know with the condition of Bessie's body is what was done to her prior to the dismemberment. All sorts of things could have been done to her. This could have been a sexually motivated homicide. We have no idea. By the time her body was found, any of that type of interaction was long gone. I would not eliminate that as a possibility.
0: You know, I think if we're wrapping this up, my instinct is probably your instinct, which is the person who last saw her besides a doctor, right? So there was a little bit of suspicion that maybe this was a botched abortion and the doctor freaked out and, and covered he it He really up.
1: freaked out. <laughs>
0: yeah, really freaked out. In her apartment, he found sanitary napkins. It doesn't seem like she was really pregnant yeah. by any means at the time. So he crossed that off pretty quickly. She has told her mother she's going to see this sheriff. hmm didn't have enough evidence. He doesn't have all of the DNA evidence. He doesn't have all of the resources that we have today. Cell phone records. I mean, there's a whole list of things that he could have done to eliminate Barnett or include Barnett, at least exclude Barnett as a suspect that he didn't have access to. So I think in some ways they're sort of grasping at straws, even though I don't think that that he thought that at the time.
1: Victimology is huge. We know Bessie had a history of extorting men with the... the the ruse that they fathered a child. And she reportedly that last night had said, I'm going out on a date with the sheriff that night. And her mother said, don't do it. He's dirty. And she was like, oh, don't worry, mom. He'll pay like the others. Looking at how she's dismembered, how efficiently she's been dismembered, the application of the, the chemicals, the body dispersal across a broad area within the eastern part of the Bay Area. That's where I would most certainly focus my primary thrust with the investigation.
0: I agree. And in this note that Oscar writes to Earl Warren, he says that her mother says Barnett wanted her to go to the doctor for the pregnancy. Bessie refused to go. And the mother claims that Bessie was thoroughly disgusted with him. Hmm. Sheriff Barnett was married. Oscar took some soil samples from Barnett's home, and the organic matter didn't match the sand that he found at the crime scene. Again, this doesn't exclude him. No, It doesn't include him, but it certainly doesn't exclude him from this. So just to tie this case up, no one is arrested. Sheriff Barnett loses his spot as sheriff. And moving forward, two years later, Oscar finds himself back in El Cerrito, very, very, very close to where the scalp and the ear are found. There is a shallow grave filled with bones that had been burned and buried. And he is having some deja vu. This is also an unsolved case, but it left him wondering forever whether or not he let a serial killer get away.
1: Sure. Whoever dismembered Bessie may be somebody who had killed before and killed after, but may not be your fantasy-motivated predator, but maybe more somebody that is willing to kill to cover up illegal activities. And, you know, your typical mafia hitman, as an example. Very different type of psychology. Is that person serial? Yes, but it's a different type of serial killer.
0: I think that whoever did kill Bessie Ferguson to Oscar was your Golden State killer until he was caught. I think this was the case for him. This was the case that haunted him.
1: Yeah, And to go to your grave without an answer, you know, I I absolutely empathize with how he was feeling about that.
0: On the next episode of Wicked Words... Was Jennifer killed because she's trans? Was Jennifer killed because she's poor? Was Jennifer killed because she's Filipino? I believe it's all three of these things. If you love historical true crime. Please check out my books, American Sherlock and Death in the Air. This has been an Exactly Right Tenfold More Media production. Alexis Amorosi is our producer, Andrew Epen is our sound designer, Ella Middleton is a researcher for us. Curtis Heath does the composition, Nick Toga did the artwork, and Ilsa Brink designed the website. The executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Daniel Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked, and on Twitter at Tenfold More. If you are an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com ads. And if you know of a historical true crime story that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. Listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.